Hey everybody, welcome back to sunny New Jersey for the Sopranos Podcast, Season 2, Episode 10, Planned Bankruptcy. Sometimes we're all hypocrites. That quote was given by Meadow Soprano in Season 2, Episode 10 of The Sopranos, entitled Bust Out, written by a murderer's row of Sopranos writers, Frank Renzulli, Robin Green, and Mitchell Burgess, and directed by the legendary John Patterson. Boring. <laughs> yeah, right? Oof. We have uh, a witness to the Bevilacqua murder. Tony wants to spend more time with AJ. Richie and Janice are exploring their kinky side. We're busting out Ramsey's sporting good. And Carmela is exploring, wallpapering her dining room. We are here for Bust Out. Guys, this is a jam-packed episode late in season two. I have a big smile on my face. I'm sure you can tell. This is uh, just an outrageously good episode. They, I know we keep saying it, but they keep doing it. So what do you want me to do about it? I'm Chris D'Amato. I'm Paul Mantini. And I'm Jordan Hugh. We're going to dig deep, baby. I can't wait. Initial thoughts on Bust Out, guys. It's a really, really energetic episode, moves around a lot, gives us a lot to work with, and really displays like the full range of human emotion. We get high highs and low lows in this episode. I think one of the things I was most interested in or most fixated on when I was kind of looking back for the purposes of analysis is we have kind of a parallel structure going on between Tony's panic and feeling like the world is moving in and closing in around him as the uh, the cops and the feds advance on him regarding this uh, quote-unquote eyeball witness uh, to the Bevilacqua murder, at the same time the walls are closing in around Davy as uh, you know his his deaths are uh, uh, overwhelming him and the you know the Soprano family has moved in on his store and they're picking the bones and uh, he is seeing the end for himself as well. So we have two desperate men. And how they are reacting to their desperate situations, and it makes for fascinating TV. It really does. I felt like this was low key one of my favorite episodes of the season. Maybe not low. Maybe low key is not the right word. So much as I want to stay away from spoilers, but I will say over time, The Sopranos really gets into the art of what I'd call anticlimax. And I think that this is one of the first shots across the bow where what the episode is building up to just doesn't happen in a couple of different storylines. Like, they're going to find this witness, right? Or Tony's going to have to run. Or Carmela and Vic Musto are going to smush in the Sopranos' ugly bathroom. <laughs> None of that happens. And the other factor that was big for me in this episode is there were two things I felt that I had never really felt before or hadn't felt at this level. The one was feeling connected to Tony in some way because of his alienation and because of the pain that he's in, even though there are times that I'm frustrated with him. I think he can be ridiculous. I definitely felt for him. I also felt an unprecedented feeling in this episode that the writer's room is showing us in no uncertain terms that Tony is poison. Tony is a... Tony functionally is like the termites that Davy describes. It gets in and that they just eat and that's all they do. And they're about as aware of it as Tony and AJ are at the end when they tip the guy's boat over. <laughs> um, they're just the, that that's their animal instinct. Um, Tony says it's his nature. I actually think it's kind of a cop out because Melfi asks him in this episode the question is, how do you stop? But to the degree that these characters are gonna give up their level of comfort, they're not gonna stop and they're not gonna change. So that's the way I felt about it. Um, so I was wrestling with all these different emotions. 
it's bleak in some ways. It's very funny in others. Um, I think it's a superb episode. Agreed on all fronts. There's a lot going on structurally. We got we're touching down on several different things. We're beyond the A B C D E you know plot structure here. There's just a we're we're dangling a lot of threads. We're racing toward the finale, and this is a a really damaging episode for Tony. Uh, if anyone was thinking, boy, you know maybe there's some good there. I, <laughs> he he. This is this is Tony at his ugliest. I uh, we talked at length during the Happy Wanderer episode whether Tony is preying on him on on Davy or whether he just feels for him and lets him sit in on the game. Uh, I, I, I think of the scene in this episode where Tony tells him flat out, you know, I knew you had this store here, Davy, and, you know, Scorpion and the Frog. We'll get into it when we talk about that scene, but pretty pretty ugly stuff. This is, this is, uh, this is not an episode that will make you feel good. No. Uh, <laughs> though Tony's moment after he finds out that the indictment is not going to happen is something I want to talk about just from an acting standpoint. It was really well done. But great shit. I'm excited. Let's start from the top for a moment here. We got uh, the big news dropped at the very top of the episode is that we have a witness, an eyeball witness. This quote, as Paulie says later, flag saluting motherfucker. Uh, In there, just innocently identifying Tony. I can't help but, at first feel for this guy it's like this guy has no idea what he's doing and he's just so innocently although he's there's a smugness there too that's oh, like you know boy is there he's overwhelmingly smug yeah yeah i'm just uh, so fucking fed up with crime yeah the way that line is is delivered and also just the characterization of him from the beginning i think i believe this character's name is mr arthur that's what they call him in the police station uh we'll check in with him again later in the episode but um <laughs> Instantly unlikable. Yeah. Right. And there's a, a purpose to that, so I guess we'll get into that. It reminded me a bit of, it doesn't have the same cultural component, but I'm sure you guys remember Richard from season one. Of course. How yeah. offended and how personally he took this larger question. Mm. This guy seems to look at crime through that prison. I'm so goddamn fed up. I wouldn't be able to live with myself if I didn't come in and help you put these guys behind bars. Um, well, it's kind of like Sloane's dad and Ferris Bueller, right? Isn't that... <laughs> now you see here, Rooney! Right? It's that guy. That's the guy that they keep making fun of one way or another. You know, that they cast different people. And his hypocrisy, as Meadow tells us, because sometimes we're all hypocrites, his hypocrisy will enact the end of this story. There's a reason we pulled that as our pull quote. That's, uh, you know, there's... there's, I mean, hypocrisy is probably one of the top three themes on display throughout the entire series but in in particular there's a lot of it in this episode these characters uh, being hypocrites and you know kind of going back on their word going back on their own codes uh it's 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 good stuff it's such good stuff i think um you guys both mentioned and i think sort of deconstructed eloquently when we did the last episode why the murder of matt bevilacqua was a little different than other mob murders where in many cases the body might not even be found but here an example had to be made because they had taken a shot at Chris, a connected guy. I thought it was a good Sopranos-level irony that the way that that murder was done is now exposing Tony to possible prosecution. Not only was this body found, but was found with all the blood and everything. So it's possible that, though they had their reasons for doing the murder that way, it is now why the problem in this episode happens. Yeah. This wasn't a business thing. This wasn't even a slip-up. Uh, this was Tony enacting revenge for somebody shooting his nephew. 
I'm not even necessarily sure that shooting someone who shot somebody you love is is exclusive to a mob character. That's just something anybody can at least understand. I can look at that and say, well, I probably wouldn't respond that way. I, I might rely on the legal system a little bit more than Tony would in this situation. But Tony was getting revenge for his nephew. I, I don't mm. I don't hate him for this. I don't hate him for it, but he's been advised so many times to keep a lower profile and he keeps doing ostensibly very high profile things. Yeah, okay, kill Matt Bebelacqua. He certainly deserved it, but I don't know, maybe don't set the example or don't murder him in a place that is so, I guess, public or easily found as the snack shack by the George Washington slept to your house. I don't know. Um, just, you know, keep a lower profile when you're doing this. I, I, I get it. I understand the example. I just like, could it maybe not have been Tony? Did he have to do it himself? I mean, this will come up later. Is Tony feeling guilt for this? And the reason I ask, there's an interesting cut in the very next scene. Tony's on the carousel. He sees a little kid lost. He's watching the carousel. He's not, that's a funny image, Tony on a carousel. Um, he's watching the carousel at the mall. He's just kind of hanging out at the mall waiting for Richie as we come to see. And a little kid gets lost calling for his mommy. And we get him flashed back uh, to Matt Bevelacqua calling out for his mother in his final moments before the murder. What's that about? Is Tony? Uh, what's Tony feeling here? And, and it, I ask this with the context of in the very next scene we see Tony... He's talking about wanting to spend more time with AJ. And he specifically cites to Carmelo, this other poor prick they found. What was he, 23? He says, we don't want another Christopher on our hands. Sure. It is so, guilt, yeah. I think. Um, and I think for all of these characters, and Tony especially, there is a cumulative guilt that accumulates over time. You know, in the first season, we have, you know, Christopher commits his first murder, and he is haunted by the, um, I don't know if you want to call it, like, like the specter of the first person he really kills. And, you know, Polly tells him, like, you know, it, it gets easier the more of them you do, right? Or perhaps that's Pussy that tells him that. Pussy. Uh, Pussy, I'm sorry. Uh, Pussy tells him, you know, it gets easier the, the more you do. Easier, sure. Yeah, you're sleeping okay, but you still did it. It's still, <laughs> you know, in your subconscious. So I think there is some guilt that is bubbling up here. And there's clearly uh, an associated connection. He's thinking about being a father. He's thinking about his son. He's probably thinking a little bit about his mob son, Christopher, and that's tied to AJ, and those things are all tied together in his neural network. Mm, yes, well said. Uh, I just thought absolutely brilliant image of this. We've all been, possibly seen this kind of thing. My younger brother once got lost in a mall. He got really upset. The kid lost in the mall. He's crying for his mother. Sure. Um, later, Tony is upset that AJ is going to go wander around the mall. Um, mm -hmm. And I, I also was wondering about this guilt question and we'll have to, uh, I'm going to restrain myself because we'll get into Tony's difficulty with expressing his emotions in this episode. But I certainly felt like there was that question of guilt, but also what is he going to do with it? And how, if at all, is he going to communicate it? And I was brought back to, I think, something, Jordan, you said when we did Down Neck, that just uh, Tony is both of his parents, mm -hmm. genetically. And just as he is both of them, I think part of what's happening in this episode is Tony is both a father who does care about his kids and he's an antisocial criminal. Like, all of that is coming together. That's what's happening in that scene and we see Tony a bit flustered by it. Yeah. It reminded me of Down Neck in another way, too, because we have kind of a... There's a carnival reference in Down Neck as well. That's where Johnny's been taking Janice and right. I don't know. I don't know if this brought him back to his place in childhood because the other little boy I thought of when he sees that boy is not AJ, but himself. Mm. Uh, I think there's that connection too. Wow. And I think down I think the carousel reference is purposeful. Why do we have a carousel in that shot? I think it has to be a reference to Down Neck. 
That's interesting. I never even pieced that together. I hadn't thought of that, yeah. That's cool. I like that, though. He's there to meet Richie, and Richie is griping. He's not getting enough roots. He's the least amount of roots of anybody in the association. He's got issues. This is Richie in every episode. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, it's like what... (laughs) He just doesn't feel like he's getting what is owed to him. This is Richie's story. This is Richie's song and dance. You pretty much know going into a meeting with Richie, it's going to be some variant of this. And Tony's being... What Tony is doing to Richie, what Tony has been doing to Richie since they fell out over the Beansy thing, which is taking any opportunity to just not take him seriously, poke at him, prod at him, fucking Dick Barone, well, as long as the two of you are happy. <laughs> cracking, cracking jokes. <laughs> he tries to drop this quote that Junior gave him a few episodes ago. You're like a woman with a Virginia ham on her arm crying the blues because she got no bread. And Richie's just like, what? <laughs> This is not. The, Never mind. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, just keep, this yeah. is not the first time Tony has tried to drop a quote on somebody. I'm reminded of Captain Teebs in <laughs> episode two of season one, with the the, the the quote he got from Melfi that he drops on Livia, and she's just like, "Who's he?" <laughs> uh, <laughs> just so fucking funny. And uh, <laughs> Richie just basically implies, like, "Yeah, see what you can do since you own part of the company." You know, implying that Tony could very well fix this if he wants to. And he walks away angry, and Tony smirks. I think Tony can fix Richie's issue. Of course, he's he can. just being a dick because he doesn't like Richie, and these two are not getting along. He a lot of this episode <laughs> is about unintended consequences, and Tony is not thinking that he's creating a problem here. In yeah. part, first of all, he doesn't know that Richie knows. That he spit on, in Richie's words, the jacket gift. Yeah. Which will come up later in this episode in a weird scene. And (laughs) Tony also doesn't know that his breaking balls is frustrating Richie, who is already working on something. Yeah. And it reminded me again of something in the first season when, another important character here, Tony would tease Junior and not perhaps understand that poking these particular vulnerabilities not sufficiently appreciate that it's going to cause some kind of equal and opposite reaction. And sure enough here, Richie's going to start to get worked on by another character. So shit's happening here. And Tony is just like smiling throughout this scene and doesn't get it. Yeah. Or doesn't yet see what's forming here. Yeah, the audience sees it because we saw just how devastated the jack, just how devastating the jacket incident was for Richie. But he never had that confrontation with Tony. He presumably offset by Christopher getting shot. Right. Presumably, yeah. he just stopped bringing the jacket up every time they saw each other. And that's as far as Tony knows, you know. But yeah, Richie's not in a good place uh, right now with Tony, and this is not getting any better. But he tells Carmel in the next scene, "I want to spend more time with AJ. That kid needs to toughen up. I don't want another Christopher on my hands." Uh, Carmela asks, "I love the phrasing. Why the sudden burst of fatherhood?" Yeah. Right, and then she actually brings up she brings up a Harvard University study about how a strong relationship with your father can actually help you kind of develop better coping mechanisms as an adult. That's something for us to chew on uh, in the mm. audience as well. And this is another example that happens multiple times per episodes of like the the world of higher order academics and the sciences kind of visiting the lower down people in the Sopranos <laughs> world. Like, oh, this is what they're saying at Harvard, right? Yeah. Um, but there's some truth there. Yeah. And it's natural that Carmela is the one bringing up the question of nurture and growth and uh, opening up. It, it turns out to be, frankly, I think, fucking hilarious as a concept that Tony <laughs> is going to get AJ to open up. Tony can't share in this episode. It's it's a major part of the A-plot. Yeah. Carmela mocks him later in the episode, thanks for sharing. Yeah. Uh, it's crazy. <laughs> 
Very true. Then we get into our next kind of nexus or spine of this uh, of this hour, and we are getting an inside look at the Scatino bust out. For mob movie aficionados, you learn about a bust out from Goodfellas. Uh, they did it to the restaurant. Basically, the mob comes in on a business and they rack up the credit, buying a bunch of bullshit on credit, selling it out the back door at a profit, and then just never paying off the creditors. The business goes up in bankruptcy and that's it that and and that's that's how this works that's they do it to people who owe the money for one reason or another as davy owes plenty and uh, we're getting this scene we get to see it from the inside out they're ordering coolers remlos of water and you know they're all just kind of sitting around very casually ruining this guy's business order by order yeah uh yeah well, they're never gonna get paid for it anyway and you know, they got to be, you know, he wants the red coolers, not the blue. Fuck blue, <laughs> red cells. Richie's very well learned on cooler sales. Apparently, yeah. yeah. <laughs> very well versed in cooler sales. And then there's cooler, red coolers and Ramblosa all over the episode. Mm-hmm. Oh, the my termites God. dig in everywhere. One of my favorite moments later in the episode is when Artie is serving a, a meal to Carmela and Christine, Davy's wife. And he's like, I'm just going to cook filets. I got such a... I, I know you... What is it? The Pellegrino they usually get or whatever? But he's like, I got you such... You ordered the Pellegrino. Pellegrino, yeah. but I got such a deal on this Ramloza. <laughs> and he bought it from Davey, and he's serving it. This this water, which is the fruit of this destroyed business, being served to a woman as she's telling Carmela, uh, well, you know, at least you can't ruin the business. That's still in my name. Yeah. So smart. So yeah. funny. You can't get away. We're all hypocrites. Yeah. Yeah, so good. This scene at Ramsey Outdoor, the direct transition is from Tony very near the end of the scene with Carmela in the bedroom saying, gotta teach his kids some street smarts, how not to be a sucker. Then the gangsters proceed to make a sucker out of this poor asshole Davey. Yeah. Just again and again. It's brutal. The And the scene, again, like, even though there is, the temperature is dialing up a bit with Tony and Richie, and we'll see what Richie uh, later in the episode with Junior, but it's interesting that here they're aligned. It's the business, this is what it is. It's all the same shakedown. They're also having a good time, at Davy's expense for sure, but this scene is very jovial, uh, it's lighthearted, and when there are good times, Richie can participate in that. Like, he somehow manages to not dampen this scene. Mm. <laughs> Who's not gonna say, fuck it? Give me one. <laughs> Then we see Tony spending time with AJ in their pool, this beautiful house. I love this. Very good acting here. I wouldn't be surprised if, the, although I'm sure in a show like this, they don't let entire scenes be improvised. But I wouldn't be surprised if a lot of this was just uh, Robert Eiler and James Gandolfini fucking around. It just felt so natural. The thing with the spider and the leaf. and It was a leaf, you friggin' idiot. Uh, AJ <laughs> jumps in the pool rather than kills the spider. I think that's funny. Um, I gotta tell you, spiders are no joke in New Jersey. I've seen a few big ones uh, around, not in the house, thank- thankfully, but uh, a couple spiders around this house have uh, been bigger than stuff I've seen in New York and Connecticut, personally. So, you know, I'm not... Uh, Noted. I Noted. <laughs> I wouldn't jump in a pool uh, but, uh, rather than face it down, but, uh, you know, as a kid who was scared of spiders, I, mean, you know, I, I get it, AJ, I get it. And then the, uh, the maid comes in, Warrant. Warrant. How do you say it in fucking Polish? <laughs> Great line, just casually racist and nasty to the maid and goes in and deals with Agent Harris. Agent Harris is here. 
And uh, again, we have a situation where someone is coming at Tony with uh, something very serious, and Tony's being very comical and dismissive. Uh, but unlike the interaction with Richie, this one clearly holds weight with Tony. When that you can see a shift in him, uh, he walks in all confident, oh, Agent Harris kind of vibe, and then the second Matt Bevilacqua's name comes up, it's like uh, you can see his fucking heart leap for half a second. Yeah. And Harris is accompanied by another paisan, an agent named Jordana, mm. uh, who we haven't seen as of yet. It's a new. A new fed. Yeah, he uh, always so brings an Italian with him. That's yeah. an interesting. Well, thing. I think that's. I think it's to goad Tony in some way. Yeah, I think it's yeah. strategic. That's a great pickup. Yeah. Yeah. How you broke your nose? <laughs> uh, you yeah. guys don't mind rolling the garbage down the driveway for me? <laughs> Scene starts with that framework. Tony wants to toughen the kid up. Come on, you're afraid of a freaking spider. And Carmela said, "Got to get that kid to open up." In the end of the scene, do not tell your mother about this. Yeah, you know how she gets. Yep. Yeah. Tells him, you know, the key up, upholding the code of silence uh, in the family. Then we get the scene. We touch back down at least once an episode. Now we're really ramping up with Pussy and Skip. Skip and Pussy in the car, and uh, Skip is not happy when he gets the description of Tony's accomplice and really comes down hard on Pussy. We talked at length uh, in the last episode about how Skip sucks and and we hate. Yeah, Skip's the worst character on the show. <laughs> yeah, he's like uh, in all time, like of what we've covered. No spoilers for the future. All time, he's like for me up there with like Coach Hauser. Oh my like, god, I hate Skip. <laughs> <laughs> I don't, I don't quite hate him that much, but he is. Uh, you know, I, they have a very interesting confrontational scene here. Did you fuck me? Um, and the pussy does a good job denying it. We get a little bit of insight into some other ways that Pussy has been avoiding giving the feds information. He wants uh, Tony Soprano, he's, he's going to decide to believe Pussy, but he wants Tony Soprano on tape saying, I killed Matt Bevilacqua, quote, no throat clearings, no fucking nose blowings. <laughs> so Pussy has been, apparently has this MO where when key information is being dispensed, while he's, tired, <laughs> he's coughing and blowing his nose. I think that's very funny. He's playing both <laughs> sides of the fence still. He's walking the line. And, uh, you know, I, I think, you know, Skip has to know he's being jerked around, but there's not a ton he can do about it at this level. Uh, but this murder could be bad news. Pussy poses the question, you know, even let's say I did go along with Tony on something like that. Wouldn't that get rid of any doubt? And Skip just dismisses that as, as he would. Uh, but, yeah, so Skip is turning up the pressure here, and Pussy, um, Pussy now has a little bit more inside information. He was spotted, Thal. So <laughs> that fucking lisp, I hate it. It seemed a bit to me like Pussy, even in maneuvering, as you say, Chris, for like with some cleverness out of the frying pan, he's then into the fire. Is this the hell that Pussy is in in this season? Like, no matter what he does, the the heat is still turning up in terms of one end or the other because he's playing both sides. Sure. Like he got away with this port, but now we got to get Tony on tape. It's it's hell, it seems. Yeah. Oh, well, I think we're supposed to get the impression it's just it's unsustainable, right? It has to crack at some point. Mm-hmm. Then Tony's at the lawyer's office. Neil Mink. This yes. is the first appearance of Neil Mink, is it? I believe it is. Have we seen Neil Mink before? He this? was in. Uh, he's in a scene in the first episode of season two. Right with Hesh. Yeah, he's who I assume okay, yeah. is the person who recommended. Sure. Neil Mink, but this is the first time I think we really get. Something. Right, and it's famous character actor David Margulies. So, yes, which is just awesome. Who I know best is the mayor from Ghostbusters, mm-hmm. Lenny. Yeah. I just I, I adore him. Yeah, no, he's a great character actor. Great, great choice for this role. He and Tony have a 
you know, we don't, you know, Mink is not a huge character right now, and but uh, he, he and James Gandolfini clearly have a good chemistry, and uh, we get a sense that, you know, they these two have interacted before. Tony wouldn't get him. Tony's too smart to get a shitty lawyer, so... Uh, but he's uh, Tony's legitimately nervous. This is this is a new. Melfi mentions it in a few scenes, but Tony is. Uh, we've never quite seen Tony quite like this. He's uh, he's rattled. He's pretty unflappable for the most part when it comes to the legal consequences of what he's doing. But this one, uh, this this is some bad shit here. I think he says to to Mink. Yeah. So just an interesting little touch down there. Then we get this little scene between I guess Carmela and some of the ladies are planning senior night. At the school, and I thought uh, it might have even been the prom, since like yeah. sort of it's it's getting to that point of the year when college decisions come down. All yeah, that April first, you know? how yeah. I dread it. She's refer- referring to the day that most of the college admissions letters go out. Right, uh, perfect day for them to go out. In my opinion, <laughs> Wait, April that, Fool's Day. That joke has been yeah, said. <laughs> it's so true. Like why that day? Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, Eric wants to go to Georgetown. Funny, ironic there, because, you know, Meadow is kind of way more interested in Berkeley. We know that from the uh, previous episode where Carmela tried to get a letter of recommendation for Meadow for Georgetown. But the point of this scene is that, uh, you know, Christine is there and we get a little bit of her perspective on what's been going on with Davey. And she lets the car thing go and says maybe it's better for his grades and he doesn't have the car. And I think uh, Eric is... Eric, the reason she needs a ride from Vic is because Eric is taking her car to, uh, yeah, some kind of event, some kind of, some kind of event. Unintended um, consequences. Fencing night. It's fencing, Tony yeah. and Davy's fault. Yeah, it's Tony yeah. and Davy's fault. That she even meets Vic Musto. Yeah, exactly. Hilarious. Yes. The, the word absurd kept coming up for me in this episode, and it's coming up a lot of times this season. Yeah. There's a reason for that. It's just, I, it's so brilliantly done. Yeah. And she meets Vic, and there is an instant... Spark. Uh, yeah, to quote Mario Puzo, it's like the thunderbolt Michael Corleone feels when he sees Apollonia in Italy. It's like instant attraction. You can see it on Carmela's face. You can see it in her body language. Vic, uh, this kind of tall, you know, decent-looking, stoic kind of man, just instantly brightens up and smiles. I'd go above decent looking. I he's think he's a pretty hunky guy. Yeah, I, I'm, yeah. I, I don't know. I'm not. Uh, I'm not a good judge of that. I'm in the women. But, but I, I actually wrote down. I was like, he reminded me of like, it's like the Harlequin romance cover where it's like the big, studly, <laughs> muscly Roman looking guy. Yeah. You know? Well, I think when he was a bit younger, he was a soap opera guy, and this oh, is a very soapy oh, really? story, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah, that's funny. Yeah, Joe Penny, I think, is the actor's name. Jake and the Fat Man. Okay, and, uh, there you go. Yeah, so Carmela <laughs> takes his card, and she's going to call him about her dining room. I bet uh, she is. I wish you all could see the quotation marks I'm making with my finger. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and um, we get that scene in the car. We get a little bit of insight on Vic. He's presented as an honorable man. I, You know, it's the ring I respect. Right. A widower, yeah. Yeah, a widower. His wife uh, passed away. Especially that ring probably came off a dead person's finger. Cut to Davy Scatino on the on the pool table <laughs> with a pistol in his mouth. God bless abs- and keep John Patterson. These transitions in this episode are so great. <laughs> That's a grim one, but it's kind of funny too, right? You have to. It's a it's a dark humor, but this show yeah. has a very dark sense of humor. I'm fixing a fucking light bulb, Chris. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Oof. Rough, rough scene. I feel obviously you feel for Davy here, but you have to just acknowledge the humor of that cut. 
Well, um, it's um, I mean, he's a more outlandishly expressive character than Tony, but he's going through a very similar thing. He's just feeling his world close in around him, and he's exploring his options. Mm-hmm. Right? What does the end look like? He'll ask later. This is one. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He decides not to though. He puts tucks it up into the the gun up into the ceiling. Right. Great uh, hiding place, idiot. <laughs> Um, you know, he's not so much worried about the pool felt anymore. Uh, <laughs> and, um, I, I, I gotta say, I, uh, I almost considered blowing my own brains out after the next scene. Um, uh, <laughs> I kind of wish I could unsee. Uh, well, we should really, let's dig in on this one. Sure. So it's important to dig in on So it's Richie and Janice. <laughs> he's taking her from behind on their on the couch in the house that she shares with Livia. He's got a gun pointed to her head during the sex. And she is telling him, like, dirty things, but dirty things in a very, like, overtly manipulative way. You're the boss. You're the boss. Uh, This is the best I ever had it. Fine. Okay. But then also, it should be you. It should be you. Which actually, once she says that more than once, takes him out of the moment. Yeah. And he can't finish and... The sex has to stop at that point. Yeah. She finds powerful men erotic. Oof. They know the dig at me. <laughs> <laughs> um, I will, let me say this. So I, of course, remember this scene from seeing it when I was younger. How could you forget this? Um, but you know what? Revisiting this as someone in my middle 30s instead of in my early teens or possibly 12. I don't really remember when I saw this. Way too young. Yeah. Um, we were both in our early teens when this right. scene Right. Uh, seeing this now in my mid-30s, I, I hate to say this. It actually seemed more normal to me now. I don't know if that just means I've had a fucked up life. I don't know. But I was like, no, I get it. You know, it was like some women are into this kind of... I wouldn't use a gun. My God, I think, you know, let's hope it's not loaded. Probably fucking is because they're weird. Um, But, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, people are into those, you know, power things in sex. Power plays, BDSM. BDSM. Many women enjoy the feeling of being taken. A lot of men enjoy the feeling of being dominant. Dirty talk is uh, very common. Even that kind of dirty talk could be common. But l- there's a purpose to her dirty talk, right? We we get this behind-the-curtain look at, like, all right, this is this is what Janice is after, right? Can I ride this guy to the top? She's making... Uh, she, she, she is uh, making Lady Macbeth moves all the way. Yep. Mm-hmm. And what I mean by that is, those of you who aren't familiar with the Scottish play, it's that, um, you know, the king, Macbeth, is almost always pushed into bloody action by his wife, Lady Macbeth, who challenges him, his authority, his, his masculinity. Manhood, yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. So that's exactly what we're seeing here. She and she knows what she's doing. That's no accident for Janice to say it like that. Um and to, you know, take him out of it. She plays innocent. What? What? I was making love to you, baby. That's how you like it. No, no. Janice is way too calculating. We know from the first half of the season, we know enough about her to know that there's no accidents with her. Uh, this is and, and she's she's trying to get what she wants. Richie, I think it's an interesting kind of parallel here that his lust for Janice is kind of attached to his lust for power. And he loses both by trying to stick to this old school idea. I'm old school Janice. I have to be loyal. Without that, we crumble. So it's like a, a loss of he's what a hypocrite. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah. I have to be loyal. Richie, you, when have you had a loyal fucking thought this season? Yeah. My God. I, I did write down that I gotta be loyal is a better line than I must be loyal to my capo. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. Beautiful woman. <laughs> <laughs> but I, uh, I think it's interesting that I, I like the way you guys both deconstructed that scene. I, I hadn't thought of it 
in in those terms of actually not being too weirded out by the gun thing, but as dangerous as that plays, and as dangerous as indeed a lot of the dialogue is here, um, Janice definitely her mother's daughter. Um, I don't think it's an accident that Livia is debilitated because Janice is so powerful in this moment. But other aspects of the scene play up that they were teenage lovers, it seems. Like, oh, they're yeah. smoking a joint. They're fucking on the couch. Livia comes down. I want to watch the TV. Are you smoking marijuana? Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's it, very absolutely. funny. Like grabbing blowjobs on my mother's couch. Yeah. Right? I was just about to say, <laughs> Tony, right back to Tony that. specifically said that when he first encountered Richie at... Uh, at, at their mother's place in uh, episode five, I believe. Yeah. And though I guess that ending dissipates what's some of the natural tension that's brought up there, it comes right back when they go visit Junior. So it's nice that they do it that Why way. Why is that so funny, her coming down the stairs in that thing? <laughs> I laughed. Well, I had to laugh. Those chairs are funny. Yeah. The, it's funny. It's been funny since Gremlins. They're funny. Yeah, yeah. Just the static camera. <laughs> the, it's just because it's so slow and it's... And it's Libya. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, yeah, it's Nancy Marshawn and everything she does is gold. I mean, yeah, yeah. And yeah. I think the regression of Janice to the state. Right, right, exactly. Listen to her, like Rose Kennedy, oh with all her money to throw around. Well, it's like it's like this too. This is true of Janice as well. Every man is powerful until he has to talk to his mother. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. The same is true of Janice. You know, mm-hmm. as awful and predatory and whatever as Richie can be or as manipulative as Janice is, when Lydia comes in, it's just like, they're still they're her children. Yeah. You know, it's still her daughter. She's behaving the way Meadow might have if Carmela had come down the stairs, you know? Mm-hmm. We get a very quick touchdown scene. I don't know how much there is to say about this, except that uh, if the audience didn't pick up on Carmela's attraction in the initial scene... They're certainly making it clear now uh, Carmela is having some kind of hot dream about Vic. Uh, and uh, we take a long, long moment with this, and she wakes up. It's like, oh, my God, what? And then looks over and make, you know, make sure she's not waking Tony up. Um, yeah, I actually, I, I, I want to say something about this scene. I don't think there was a lot of women masturbating on TV at this time. Mm. So I actually think this was, I don't want to say innovative, but I think it was good that it was expressed. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I don't know. Male, male masturbation is, is a far more open thing. I think we mm. all just kind of assume all men masturbate. Women masturbate. Well, female masturbation is is absolutely a thing. I don't think there's a lot of depiction of it. Mm. Certainly not at this at this time. Right. Absolutely, yeah. Good point. Jordan. I think we're getting. Yeah, that's a really good point, and we're getting a bit deeper into, I think, the frustration that Carmela has that was really well uh, structured in uh, episode four, Commendatore. Mm. They even bring back that annoying. Andrea Bocelli song that seems to remind <laughs> us of that theme yeah. coming back again but th- th- this is much more overtly um, sexual and romantic and in terms of her emotional and physical needs yeah. um, Tony literally not in the bed with her his part his larger pulling away in a lot of this episode yep and then we get this after hours scene at Ramsey's Sporting Goods I love this scene I had to pause this scene because there were so many f- like flamingly awesome quotes in this scene that I had to that I had to pause to get them all down on paper when I was making my notes for this for this episode. God, this is a great. This is one of my favorite scenes just cuz I it, it's intense. It's it's emotional. There's a lot going on. There's humor. This is a great classic Sopranos scene. Is them and Ramsey's after hours. Tony and Pussy just kind of sitting there and lamenting. Tony poses the question, if they have something on me, why aren't they talking to you? Pussy a little too calm. Don't worry, they will. And then Paulie comes in with the news. Uh, it's an eyeball witness. 
he's a civilian. Flag saluting motherfucker. Tony loses his temper. Kicks something. Did you see anybody? Did you see another fucking living soul? They talk about lambing it. Uh, maybe put the Furio says maybe you should lamb chop for a while. <laughs> <laughs> so funny. Yeah, very funny. But they talk about this guy who had to flee in like a couple minutes and head out to Elvis country. Elvis country yeah. anywhere there are no Jews or Italians. Yeah. <laughs> I don't understand. Furio says, uh, "Pussy makes a line." This is what I mean. Like, there's just so many of these funny lines they're slipping in here. Uh, Pussy says, uh, "Yeah, I gotta keep a suitcase in my car." Paulie says, tell me about it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Fuck you guys. Buy fucking bygones or never bygones. I feel like this is a lot of the Renzulli stuff that's in this scene. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. I, 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 yeah, it's so good. So funny. These guys just shitting. And then it's starting. It's fucking starting. Davey comes out of the office. What a, what a great time for him to come out and have this complaint. <laughs> Oof. And then he, like, get back in your hole. <laughs> he fucking, like, trips over a rack of clothes or something and Davey you're doing a good job <laughs> oh I love that the the store each time we see the store looks a little bit oh, worse like it is decaying in real time <laughs> the longer that they're sitting on it yeah the first time we ever see Ramsey's I think when Richie goes in to collect his envelope it's beautiful and it's like a nice sporting yeah, store it looks right. like a Dick's or a sports authority yeah or, you know any other great sporting and then now it's like there's half the racks are empty. Some of them are kind of slanted or leaning off. No, there's, yeah, now it looks like the baby. The inventory gap at the is low. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Davy is just he's checked out. He knows it's over, and you know I'm gonna go to jail for this. They got to lean on the building. That's another important bit of information he drops. What happens in a couple of beats here and then when he catches Davy uh, sleeping in the tent is Tony doesn't quite have the bandwidth to deal with the fact that Davy is suffering. Certainly not that he's suffering under. Tony's own thumb. Yeah. And to me, probably for the first time in watching this season, it actually struck me as worse that not only is Tony eating what's re- the left of this guy's stupid life, but that he barely meant to. Yeah. He didn't plan it in advance. It came up, and again, that's what a termite does. It. This is a machine that keeps going of itself, and Tony mm-hmm. is an animal that doesn't know why it's eating. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So... It, I found the whole thing like kind of chilling, actually. Yeah. Even though there are some, this scene itself has hilarious moments. Sit on this cocksucker. Yeah, Ultravam. What's it mean? Uh, so, <laughs> <laughs> I know what it means. Oh God, so funny. Yeah, but no, very well said, Paul. Very well said. Next is the scene with Artie and uh, Carmela that we talked a little bit about before. But basically, Carmela and Christine are having lunch and talking about Davy's troubles and, you know, thank God the business is in her name, but she comes clean to Carmela about the gambling and that this is something that has happened before. As I said, Artie drops the Ramlosa. Just, <laughs> I love how happy Artie is that he got a deal on this water. It's such, he, he probably got it like, you know, 30% off, or maybe 50%, you know, like really crazy discount. And uh, he's serving it to the woman whose business is suffering because of that very same Ramloza. It's so good. Mm-hmm. So good. Uh, and by the way, this is exactly what I would want to hear from Marty Bucco. Give me your menus. You know, oh, yeah, uh, tasting uh, menus. Yep. You can put together. <laughs> okay. Marty Bucco tasting menu any day of the week, baby. Any day of the week, twice on Sunday. We said in Happy Wander, uh, <laughs> Artie is definitely a tryhard. But here the women are charmed by it. Um, yeah, yeah, I thought it was very sweet. And, yeah, I can't put enough quotes around the phrase, wallpaper your dining room. Yeah, that's what she was dreaming about, all right. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. 
I'm sure he wants to do some interior design. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Oh, God. Uh, he so... wants to paste her walls real bad. Oh, yeah. Boys, boys. <laughs> no, no, easy. We're horny today. It was that Janice and Richie scene. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> got me all bothered. It got us all randy, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, disgusting. So then we get this very different scene back at home with Tony and AJ. Tony wants to... He's got him his uh, fishing pole, fishing rod that was put on back order from Christmas. Wants to take him to the movies. AJ's going to the mall to meet Heidi and Brad. Uh, and, <laughs> and Tony just... <laughs> I think this is a funny generational thing. Tony just doesn't get it. Like, you know, kids going... He mentions to Melfi in one of the subsequent scenes that he just doesn't get this. Uh, but he's very clearly disappointed. He wanted to... You know, he's an agenda here. He wants to... Spend more time with AJ, and AJ's uh, getting a life of his own. Yeah. Melfi talks about this in therapy. This is the bittersweet period of uh, teenagers discovering they have a life of their own. It's the first step on getting those ducks to fly from the nest, right? I mean, uh, he's starting to lose his chance to really uh, maybe bond with his son more meaningfully, and that's really hurting him, especially Mm -hmm. considering he might go away, and he might not have any more time to do this. In the first scene with Carmela in the bedroom earlier in the episode, Carmela notes that actually it should probably be Meadow that he spends more time with because she's going off to college soon. Tony on the track of Street Smart says, I'm not worried about Meadow. Mm. Um, But he is not yet at peace with the whole of this empty nest question. Carmela has dealt with it much more directly, even through manipulation and machination. Tony, because of his unwillingness to engage emotionally, is nowhere. On either of these questions, even in the next scene, not that the generational differences don't mean anything, but I think it's a dodge. Like, what's yeah. what's with going to the mall? It's like Car- Melfi herself doesn't even buy it. She says, "Come on, yeah, I've, I've heard you many times talk about um, spending time with your son." And Tony, in some ways, is always I think too easy or hard on himself. Like he says, "That's over now." I was like, "Jeez, dude," mm. you know, um, it was painful. He does something in therapy that I really hate in the therapy scene. Which I, I guess, of course, he has to say it this way. But he tells her, you know, I might go away for a while. He's trying to explain some of his aberrant behavior. And um, he insists three times, I think it is, in that scene, I didn't do anything wrong. Does he really believe that? Well, I think he's working through it. He says first, for some, I might be going away for something I didn't do. Right, but he did. And then, which he definitely did. And then he said, then he changes it. Then it's, I didn't do nothing wrong. Which are two very different statements. I think that's important. Yeah, I guess. First I is first might be like default gangster denial, and then the second is, well, I did this, but it wasn't wrong of me to do it. Right. I don't know. I just I'm trying to like work through his side of what's in his head in this scene because I'm just like, you're going away for something you did. I mean, yeah. you you got caught and you realize I think you're caught. Right. Um. What? Well, when Tony says. Once AJ's out of the house, they can do whatever the fuck they want with me. I actually buy that. I, I believe that too, actually. I believe him. Yeah. I, I, this stress, this fear, this sadness, as selfish as Tony can be, is not entirely selfish. I think this is really just about he feels like he has unfinished business on the home front well, before they can put him away. This answers an old question of mine from season one. It's just like, you know, how long do any of these guys expect they can live this life yeah. before they either get killed or they get caught? And actually, this part of the scene I enjoyed when Tony said that. I was like, oh, actually, Tony has some realistic expectations that he may be killed or caught at some point. Yeah. But for him, the finish line, the planned end, right, 
is that, well, if I can get my kids up and they're set up, I'm okay. We talked I about did my job. Yeah, yeah, 100%. We talked about this when it first came out that Pussy was a, was officially a rat. That we didn't think Tony would ever snitch. Like that's mm-hmm. not something that's in his character, his DNA. I, he, I, he, he would take the years. He would he would get killed or he would take the years. Sure. Right. Yeah. So when he says they can do whatever the fuck they want with me, I believe him. Yeah, me too. Which is why I think of all his selfish impulses, this might not actually be one of them, his fear. I think he does fear dread for AJ, his family, and what will happen to them without him, which is what makes the show so complicated and what makes him such a frustratingly endearing but also evil character <laughs> yeah um yeah i don't believe him at all really um, no, you don't no no um i think he might believe it in that moment because he's stressed but he is um i think far too self-absorbed a character for it i also think that what he's doing in this portion and in this scene is he is expressing something that's real that he wants to talk to his therapist about it but as jordan laid out he's already lying about the baseline for it. Sure, that's true. And I think that what's happening with Melfi in this scene is that she is really coming to grips not just with what's happening here, but what's been happening for her the whole season, which is that she's coming to terms with, I think, how scared she is of this character. And so when she recognizes that he's scared, I think it makes something real for her. And I th- so I think that Tony in this scene is is definitely frightened but again he can't own it he says i wouldn't use that word but then his anger manifests it right yeah he resists the label or or the word scared from her Mm -hmm. uh i think more just out of like he doesn't want to be interpreted as weak Mm -hmm. because scared is weak here's a question and then he gets angry which is strong the scene also (laughs) right the scene also renders melfi very uncharacteristically impotent, I'd say. Like, at mm. the end, she's kind of doing the how do you feel Yeah, thing. she resorts to the old question, right? And how does that make you feel? Going? Yeah, yeah. Even she seems to realize, like, man, I am up against it. How do I help this guy? Well, this is a, an ongoing pattern at this point in the season. Since they've resumed therapy, right. we've been talking Th- about this. Therapies are ineffective this in this This is different season. than yeah. season one. Their, their therapy is not... They hit a wall at the end of every scene that they're in, yeah. including later this episode. After it, it, it's just it's it, you know Melfi senses Tony's frustration. She starts. She's very clearly nervous. His his fear makes her afraid, and she says maybe we should stop. Yeah, and he's just kind of breathing and staring angrily at the wall. You're so right. Well, I think you know the objective in therapy was so clear in season one, right? Mm-hmm. I'm I'm medicating him. I'm treating him for his depression and anxiety. Right, I'm helping him come to the realization that his mother is a toxic presence in his life, and then at some point, I'm helping him to realize his mother, mother's literally trying to kill him. Yeah. In season two, the objective is—it's just kind of a question mark. It's just like, okay, well, yeah. that is done. So what? What now? There's still so much more, but I don't know how to come at it. And Tony so certainly doesn't know. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's good writing because it's deliberate. They intend for this, but these scenes are directionless and unsatisfying. Yeah, they there's no revelation. There's no great progression. These two are stumbling. We get tremendous insight, like as audience yes. members. But as you've said in a in a previous episode that we recorded, like the, the scenes are satisfying for us, like in terms of like watching these two kind of combat each other. But um, for the characters, deeply mm-hmm. unsatisfying. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. So great stuff. It's important to point that out. I'm glad that came up. And then we get the second scene at uh, Ramsey's Sporting Goods between Paulie and Tony. Paulie's got nothing for Tony. I like the line he gives, you know, these. this is the Fed's tone. You know, these local cops, you buy him a Christmas tree to give you to grandmother. <laughs> <laughs> but you know how tight these Fed cocksuckers can keep it. 
And uh, Paul uh, Tony just tells Paulie, you know, go ahead, I got to think. Paulie, being a dutiful soldier, what do you need, T? You know, he'll do anything for Tony at this point. And then Tony just says, I, let, let me think. And then we have this, uh, this this scene is gross. It's gut-wrenching, the scene between him and Davey uh, in the tent. Yes. He, he looks so pitiful there. The angle he shot at, the mm-hmm. half-eaten pizza, he's just asleep snoring in his tent. Um yeah, I, I kind of thought because this is this is where our two parallel characters really meet in their parallel states, mm. and in this moment they were to me both kind of reduced to being children. Mm. Um, we have these fake trees around them, so this almost seems like a kind of a boys' camping trip for a moment. Mm. Um, and Davy's sleeping in the tent, and Tony's right there, and and Davy even like tries to take him back into a past moment, which Tony objects. Please don't reminisce, right? A moment yeah. when Davy was heroic on Tony's behalf. He doesn't want to hear that. There's some confrontation here. Why'd you let me get in the game? Mm-hmm. right and tony says i knew you had the store right and and davy asking real questions here how does this end we've seen him contemplating suicide earlier tony's wondering how his own story is going to end right is this the end for me do i go away what plans do i need to put in place and um you know tony tells him the end for you is it it's a planned bankruptcy right mm. but a bankruptcy encompasses so much more than a business closing down right it's the closing down of a life a bankruptcy. Um, let's not keep, you know, let, let, let's not forget that this store is in his wife's name. In many ways, this store represents his relationship with his wife and with his family. Um, so when this store ends, Davy kind of ends in some way. Uh, maybe he'll exist on in some form, but a planned bankruptcy to him is a, essentially a kind of a death sentence, which is what going to prison would be like for Tony. Yeah, his life as he knew it is over. Right. Yeah. And that's, of course, how we got our, our title for this week's episode. Yeah. Yeah, very good. It's sad. It's gross. Lily and I were just like, oh. Also, grown man crying is tough to watch. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's broken. He's he's done. He's had it. He's he he's he's in rough shape here. Tony know? can't even actually watch him cry. Tony has nothing for him in that moment. Yeah. I thought it was very interesting to see that again. Maybe just a slightly different outlook on this one thing Tony says, where when he talks about it's my nature, I used to. I think very often I used to think that was Tony possibly being a bit hard on himself. Now, absolutely not. I think it's more a cop-out. I think it's more like, I just don't, this is this is what I, I, and I never could have been anything else. But Melfi, again, later we'll put that question, the question is, how do you stop? And also I was very curious as to Tony, again, maybe because he is like Davey, restricted in this way, he might have to run, he might be confined to a prison. When Tony is, I guess, trying to get him to see a slightly positive side, he notes that when it's all over, Davy, you could, you're free to go. You could do, you could go anywhere you want. Yeah. I thought that was like, and certainly Davy doesn't doesn't take that in as anything positive. He, as Jordan pointed out, he'll see himself as cut loose. Yeah. So I thought it was an interesting outlook that Tony has in that moment. Yeah. Agreed. More gun imagery as we cut to. The pistol starting off AJ Slim meet. A lot of guns in this episode that has relatively little or no actual gun violence. Pulls the trigger and off. AJ's off to the races. We're picking things up in a different, little bit of a different tone here. And uh, AJ comes in third. You know, AJ, he never seems to ex- excel at anything. But uh, third is a big deal for a kid like AJ. Uh, he's proud of it. It's certainly, uh, you know, if he didn't hit his foot on the flip, he would have come in second. But... <laughs> Carmela's doing the good thing by by her son and and encouraging him and he's genuinely sad that Tony couldn't make it. I guess Tony had promised him in a scene we never saw that he was going to be there. 
I don't think Carmela's actually particularly focused on AJ right now in this moment either. You know, she kind of tells him, well, he'll be at the next one, you know, but the next meet isn't until the following year. So maybe she's still fogged up with Vic Musto, or maybe she doesn't really have much faith in AJ's swimming prowess. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, it's good that she's there. Put oh, yeah. it that way. Neither Tony or Carmela are plugged in. They are very away yeah, yeah. <laughs> in terms of being parents, you know, in this episode. Yeah, she, maybe, she, maybe piggybacking off of that point. The compliment she pays AJ was like you were like a fish out there. Yeah, it's yeah. Like the most specific <laughs> reference to someone's athleticism I've ever heard. <laughs> right. And um, yeah, she mentions to him in the next scene we see them both together that you know uh, you, you, you this whole week you're like an alien life form among us. And while this is another one of those great things the Sopranos does and good drama does, while what she's saying is absolutely true, it's also true for her. Because she's uh, in another mental space. You know? Yeah. she. I'm sure the both of them are like alien life forms. But she is pot- you know, potentially working up justification in her head to, <laughs> you know, slip outside of the marriage. And uh, I think she, she, while she's absolutely right to go after him, I think she takes it to a level that it didn't need to go to because... She's also wrestling with other things. The two of them are not on the same plane. Sure. And he's so unprepared to meet her yeah. in that fight that he basically just like laughs it off and just literally shoves her away and is kind of okay when she goes up the stairs. He's bothered. I mean, he picks up a newspaper, throws it back down, but it's, you know, he's he's not ready for anything she's throwing at him. Yeah. That's a good point. Yeah, it catches him off guard, which is possibly also why he like is petulant and she accuses him of being like a six-year-old mm-hmm. when he uh, says that he wanted to go to the mall when I wanted to take him to the movies. Yeah. Happy Wanderer Jordan mentioned that the concept of the Gary Cooper icon is not a real person. That doesn't exist. We made it up, just as we made up the Happy Wanderer. And so I, I think that's a really good point and a, and true that we can't always live up to it. But Tony sometimes, under pressure, I have to say, is not only not the Gary Cooper type, <laughs> he's kind of an SJW. He's kind of like all about his lived experience. Like, I wanted to go to the movies. It's like, ugh. God, come on. It's like, so these characters are a little ridiculous, and this is where I think the show is really getting brilliant here, the end of season two. They're kind of decadent. They're kind of fucking absurd. Mm. Like, this, I mean, I was just like, come, this is ridiculous. Yeah. Now, that being said, I still felt for him in this episode, that moment, and some others, I was like, good God. Yeah. These people, I can't take it. The, they all struck me as, not all, but everybody's a hypocrite, and most of them were repellent. Right. To me. Yeah. And speaking of the petulant decadence, he then spends the rest of the night drinking, I don't know, brandy or cognac in the dark and crying to himself. (laughs) The scene was shot very well, too. I like uh, how they did that. It was um, noticeably, to me, a handheld cam. Just adds to to the chaotic Mm. nature of the confrontation and the fight. I just, I noticed it. It was well done. And, uh... In between these two scenes that we just talked about, just for plot purposes to touch down, Tony drops off a bag with 400K at Neil Mink's office, gives him instructions. Carmela's going to come by, picks them up. If she wants it all, give it to her, but she's smarter than that. And uh, also, certainly shows us how serious he's taking all this. He thinks this is happening. Yeah. Whatever you were doing, it's not as important as letting your son know that you care about him, but what he was doing was seeing to his family. Right. And they're uh, being taken care of should he have to leave, but... There's obviously a gap because he's not communicating with them. Yeah, yeah, it's tough. Uh, it, it's tough when Carmela, a character we like, is is 
attacking a character who deserves attack <laughs> for a reason that he doesn't deserve it. <laughs> yeah, ricochet. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Classic Sopranos ricochet here. And then uh, I love this little exchange. Don't worry, this witness can't remain nameless forever. <laughs> and Neil's like, I, I didn't hear that. <laughs> he knows it. So we get a little insight there that he's he's very clearly like a mob lawyer. He knows what he's right. doing. He knows Tony's guilty of sin and, uh, you know, doesn't care. <laughs> but yeah, Tony's drunk in the dark. He's drinking. Meadow comes in. Our only Meadow scene this episode, I believe. And she has an appointment in a chat room with some friends. God, 2000. Uh, <laughs> well, probably... maybe she picked up the new Earthlink disc that uh, came in the mail <laughs> previously. <laughs> and uh, the Tony wants to talk to her. He's uh, he's clearly a little sauced. He's been drinking a little bit. Uh, turn the light off. He, he you know he can't be you know. Yeah, this uh, is sort of our long day's journey scene going on. <laughs> in this one. Yeah. That's a good point. Uh, do you know that I love you? I like this scene. It's a touching scene. But Meadow drops our our poll line which is uh, sometimes we're all hypocrites and it's a well-placed line it's a well-spoken line mm. uh, what do we make of this scene between tony and meadow here he's got a line to her where he says you're all me nothing gets by you mm. um and i think he's he's trying to pay her a compliment she doesn't take it really as a compliment she actually has such a an oddly stoic expression on her face when he says that i don't think she wants to acknowledge that the better part of her is him. Uh, mm-hmm. I think she's still trying to get away from her parents in this way um, and try to, like, distinguish herself as her own thing. You know, the, the just the chat room, going to the chat room, it's, it's I, I think, meant to be similar to AJ wanting to hang out with his friends at the mall. You know, these are, these are his kids kind of moving away from him, having their own lives and things like that. But she, you know, to, let's give her some credit. She pours the orange juice. She sits with her old man. She tolerates being told that he loves her, which is hard for a teenager to receive. <laughs> and she says, yes, I know. And she's, she's sweet about it. And she just wants him to go to bed. She sees he's going through some stuff, but I, she, I don't think she can quite see the scope of it. Yeah, I think that's, that's a great reading. I felt like the, I was also touched by the scene which made me a bit sad because so much of this, I think, is, as Jordan said, the two parallel characters are having a lot of trouble communicating with the people ostensibly most important in their life, their families. And Tony has this one honest conversation. He has to get plastered before he does it. So it made me a little bummed. That said, that moment where Meadow says that simple line that we use for our pull quote is an acknowledgement, I think, of a lot of what's been building for these characters from the first season between college and the happy wanderer, the acknowledgement and some acceptance of who her dad is and that he's not necessarily worse than other hypocrites, Mm. that she accepts that at some level. I think it does mean something to him. Yeah. Yeah. There's also this um, line he says that I didn't really care for. It was nice, but it was also like, you know, everything I do, everything I've done, everything I will do, I do for, for you, meaning you and you and AJ. I don't know that's true. I think, you know, I think Tony does a lot of what he does for himself. Any character, uh, I think, this is, I'm not blaming The Sopranos for this trope at all, but any character in a TV show who says that is lying. Yeah. <laughs> that, that's well, been my experience. It's I think like, he's, he's trying it, to Walter see White was lying about it. Tony Soprano's lying about it. These characters that say that are convincing themselves. They're not. Well, this is this is you know it's it's still all part of the sudden burst of fatherhood, right? right. What if if my life is ending? What meaning did it have? You know. I think yeah, you guys are right. Maybe maybe what I should have said when we talked about the therapy scene is that 
his saying I don't care after the kids go off is about as true as this is. Right. Like yeah. I think that he mm. he's feeling it and he wants it to be true and I think he does love and care about his kids, but Absolutely. of course it's not all that. Right. Yeah. Well said. But the wheel in the sky keeps on turning. <laughs> yeah. Great song for this episode, great song for this series. Uh, you talked about termites and this being a machine that just perpetuates and perpetuates. I think the wheel in the sky keeps on turning. Imagery is there very deliberately. It comes back again as a button in our uh, last song. Not the last time The Sopranos is going to end an episode with a Journey song to great effect, but uh, we will yeah. put a pin in that for much, much later. Yeah, we'll put a pin in that for a few years. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, wheel in the sky, and then uh, we get, again... This shit coming from the Scatino bust-out is all over this episode. Carmelo offering one of these coolers to Vic. Again, throwing this shit that is ruining Davy's business back at the Scatino family. Um, you know, offering him a cooler. He lied about the lunch. He wanted a home-cooked meal. His wife was a gourmet. She died of cancer. There's a sympathy. There's an attraction. And then they whisk away to this admittedly hideous powder room. Uh, that wallpaper is Horrible. awful. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. but it, I guess it was of the times and the style the Jersey you know houses of the 90s probably rocked a lot of that <laughs> but uh, she closes the door and they kiss I have to just the first thing that stuck out to me I just have to make a note uh, you know this goes without saying that all the all the actors on this show are top notch at all times but Edie's Alco, Edie Falco's acting in this scene is so good this is very hard to do what she's doing the you want the kiss, but then, then the immediate guilt, and then that moment she has by herself where um, she's like, her tear, her eyes are welling up with tears. This is not easy to do this scene, and, and, and it, it might, you know, maybe it like would slip under the radar uh, to many people, but she's so good. <laughs> she's just so good. Anyway, they kiss. There's tension. They immediately break it. She's electrified. She's talking quickly. They're breathing <laughs> heavily. They want more, but they're going to be. Uh, as noble as they can. What do we make of this? Uh, they make the move on each other. I don't, I'm not sure that there's a deeper reading to be yeah. had. I think it, it is just what it is. It's it's um, it's hard to watch Carmela struggling in this marriage um, yeah. that she does not feel fulfilled by. I think if this were another reality, maybe she could make a life with Vic or have an affair with Vic that would be fulfilling to her in a way that actually fulfills her. Uh, it's kind of doomed before it even gets started, but it was a nice moment for yeah. what it was. Yeah. And I guess what almost happens in this episode is Tony is almost removed from the picture. Mm. Either running away, having to run away, or going to yeah. jail, which would have perhaps complicated this story. Yeah, it's a, it's a simple uh, short scene. Yeah, Car Carmel is great, and I think they're both great. Again, maybe more like like Richie and not like Richie and Janice thank god <laughs> but like that dynamic a little bit like being reverted to a teenager like oh my god I haven't felt this way in years maybe never um yeah also like sometimes we're all hypocrites even these characters catching themselves in the hypocrisy who don't I, I wouldn't consider Carmela a, a noble character but more noble than certainly many of the others and Victor Musto had this wife that he took care of. He says he respects the ring, and he, even he can't control himself. And then they say, "Oh my God!" So it was that had that nice tension to it. Yeah, you know, listen, it's it's tough. I I you know I can't be I can't be happy necessarily that Carmela is stepping out on Tony, but at the same time, I mean, this is just such a shitty situation they're all in. I can't judge any of these characters at this time for this in a way that's meaningful or relevant. It's like you know. 
yeah, there's an there's an attraction there, and they almost uh, they almost took it a step too far, and they stopped themselves. But uh, great acting, intense moment, and it certainly left me curious the first time. You know, where is this going from here now? Sure. And then we get the. <laughs> I fucking love this scene where Richie goes to visit Junior. Junior's watching TV. Drinking Ramlosa. Drinking Ramlosa, yep. And again, these things are all over the place. <laughs> Richie brings some offerings to him. Some sneakers that light up. Junior says, I don't wear that shit. I'm going to give it to the black kid who I let wash my car. How generous. <laughs> uh, <laughs> You're too good, Junior. That's yeah. your problem. My note was that is nobody's problem <laughs> on this show. Um, not even Victor Musto. Yeah. Um, and that's the essence of, I think, the show's hypocrisy. Yeah. It's very good. There's a lot of funny... The, the humor in this scene, too. Just Junior trying to watch TV. Uh, she just says she was knocked up. You turn... <laughs> you look away for one second, they slip one in on you. Then, quote, she's a putan of this one. Last week, she fucked an arson investigator. <laughs> putan, for those of you unaffiliated with the Italian language, is whore, basically. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> but Junior, what what is he watching? I missed it. Is some kind of, I don't it's know like soap, so, some, some kind, kind of soap, soap or yeah. daytime. <laughs> but yeah, Richie's getting in Junior's ear, uh, and you know I can't not notice he's fucking you. You know this is a direct response to what we saw with Richie and Janice. Uh, he's he's doing in resentment. He said after that scene, you know, when I think of that jacket, I could slice an ear off his head. He's mad, but he has to be old school. Well, maybe he can't go and assassinate Tony where he lives, but his own, but his next best option is to get in Junior's ear. He knows there's history. He says to him, you know, you and I both know this guy should have been laid out a year ago. Junior's like, that's my nephew. How dare you in my own home? Putting on airs. Being a hypocrite. Again, another example of hypocrisy. He, he was the one who tried to kill Tony, and now it's unspeakable in his own home. Uh, <laughs> and uh, as this as the conversation hits its apex, it takes an interesting turn, where Junior deflects by giving Richie a, a an odd warning about Janice. You know who's not a good kid, and he mentions a story where he left Johnny Boy's house uh, years ago, and his wallet was light. Somebody stole from him, and this was a ten year old Janice. Uh, little a little oddly funny anecdote, but a little. Strangely ominous, too. Uh, what do we think of this scene with Junior, Richie getting in Junior's ear, and this little uh, story about Janice stealing money from him? Another good entry in the uh, Chronicles of the Power plays made by Richie April, either obliquely or directly. Uh, yeah, appeal to the exiled king, see if you can get some kind of, almost like a go-ahead to, mm. to get rid of, of Tony, who Junior has previously tried to you know do exactly that. You know, I don't know how much that Richie suspects that Janice is a bad person or that he's being manipulated by her, but this is the episode where that's starting to come in. It, it's come in in the things she says to him while they're, to use her words, making love, sure. Uh, it's it's coming back again now when Junior's like, you need to watch out for Janice if you weren't already aware. And, and you know, those seeds are uh, certainly getting planted in his mind that like, oh, you know, she's a soprano too. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Can't do any better than what you guys said. I would just offer that I think with these other storylines, some of the bigger storylines that take up some more space in this episode, these threats to Tony, absurdly, without even necessarily Tony's intervention, fall away, kind of all at once, and here, very oddly, in spaces that Tony is not looking at, possible threats to him are 
um, starting to boil. Yes. Correct. But he tells Richie, I'm in no shape for disharmony. Having some medical issues, of course, and house arrest, all of that going on. But uh, then we get the scene where Meadow starts getting the letters. It's April 1st. Uh, she goes to visit Livia. Cute little scene there. Uh, you know, anytime we get to see Livia is great. She got into Berkeley, which is their worst fear. She got into NYU. Uh, she's waitlisted at Columbia, waitlisted at Georgetown. A couple uh, just interesting notes there. Livia's mad that Janice didn't lock the door. She doesn't trust the new mailman. Again, great elderly person writing. I've heard shit like that all my life. <laughs> um, but yeah, just a little touchdown on them. She she gives Meadow a few bucks. Lock the door before you leave. I don't know how much there's to say about this scene. Just uh, touching down on it because we got Meadow's college situation updated. And we got a, you know, a little insight into uh, what's going on with Livia's. Learning how to make some chocolate pasta. <laughs> She got waitlisted at Georgetown. Um, Eric got into Georgetown. Yes. And yes. he didn't have a fancy lawyer writing him a recommendation. I assume he just got in on the merits. His financial situation means I, he probably won't go there. No. So I just wrote down, I hate it here. And <laughs> I wrote down, the characters are protected from their shortcomings. Mm. That's what I wrote down. And when, and Livia at the end of that scene says to Meadow, you don't owe them anything. My question was, then who does she owe? Mm. for these ill-gotten gains, as we've called them. Yeah, I can't do better than that. I mean, sins of the father being visited upon, you know, poor Davy's kid, Eric, I think, uh, is his name. Um, yeah, I, very notable that she's waitlisted at Georgetown where, where he has gotten in, for sure. It was it was interesting to hear which school she's gotten into versus yeah. which one she's been waitlisted at. I think I was kind of waiting on that as a viewer. I yeah. was like, oh, interesting. Okay, yes, in at Berkeley, in at NYU, great. Oh, waitlisted Bodwin. Oh, interesting. You yeah, know. Bowdoin... Uh, Columbia and uh, Georgetown. Mm -hmm. I think Penn, Penn, she got a flat-out rejection. Penn is a no. I was yeah. like, oh, fine, Penn. <laughs> you guys are too good for Meadow. Fuck you, too. Yeah. <laughs> so, let's, let's just say it. Judging by her college acceptance, she's very impressive. Yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. So, whatever they did, something happened that's right. <laughs> yeah. You know. The only wait list I would get in at Columbia was uh, the line to get to the shredder uh, <laughs> in the admissions Same. office. Absolutely. Same for me. <laughs> Uh, so good for her. We get to Conte Patiro again. She's on the phone with Vic. The dining room looks very, uh, I don't know how to describe it, like kind of Roman pastoral. It's got the sheet draped in a, you know, it's, it's, they're evo evoking romantic imagery. It's, it's fine. That's what they do. And uh, they have this call with Victor Musto again. And uh, Ramon has to work this other job suddenly. Well, one of them has to, but she, Carmela makes the overture. He, he does a, you know, they're playing this dance very carefully. He mentions the other job and puts it in the ball in Carmela, the married woman's court, to make the decision. And she does. She says, send Ramon to the other job. I'll make you a nice lunch. That And, and you know, they both, at the same time, like, apologize for the conduct the other day and then take the worst possible step to avoiding it happening in the future and arrange a private lunch uh, for the two of them. Uh, so... Just mentioning that we're gonna yeah they're gonna they're gonna smush that's yeah. this scene it's yeah. like we're getting together and we're gonna do this and then the the end is very brief it's just the rug gets taken out from under it yeah you don't yeah. need any, you don't need too many more beats mm -hmm. yeah um, oh, the the meal she describes that she may make for this man boy my mouth was watering mm. oh yeah you know oh. like forget the sex give me that give me that yeah. meal <laughs> <laughs> yes like yes. A, yeah some a chicken. Uh, dish and a Galantine de Poulet. Yeah, 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 yeah. salad. It was all sounded great. 
we're going to come right back to Vic and Carmela in just a moment here, but <laughs> it's time to touch back on Mr. Arthur, the Arthur family. Uh, they're this, listening to the shitty dissonant music. This show <laughs> hates the pretentious academic class. Yes. It hates them. As it do hates, I. It hates Jeannie and Joni Cusimano. It hates, in some ways, it hates Elliot. Yeah. Uh, it hates anyone in that class, and these people are of that class. Mm-hmm. You know, it hates Richard. It hates all these folks, and I, these are them. I know people you know? like this too. It's so funny. Yeah, and uh, Mr. <laughs> Arthur, by the way, is reading fucking Anarchy State and Utopia, which <laughs> I've never read, but sounds annoying. You know, uh, good enough. Yeah, no, he 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 he's again back touching. I know it's like beating a dead horse, but the wheel in the sky keeps on turning. Another moment of blatant hypocrisy here. He's so fucking fed up with crime. He's got his yuppie little house with his shitty wine and his dissonant music. And he's reading Anarchy State and Utopia because he, he's, he's longing for that perfect world without crime, uh, without, uh, without violence, without state influence. And by God, all of a sudden, once it comes out who he's witnessing against, that all fucking flips real quick, doesn't it? When, it's all, when it comes back around on him. Uh, so fucking funny. Uh, I love how panicked the wife gets. Great casting here. On the fridge! On the fridge! We're on the fucking fridge! <laughs> I knew it! But you had to be the big man! <laughs> yeah, her voice cadence perfect. Yeah. Now see here, Rooney, that's who they are! <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> And we, and, we, and we enjoy watching them squirm at the end. It is fun. Right. Well, it's, it's, sure. it's the box you leave at the Cusimano's house, right? It's the same mm, fucking yep. pleasure, right? We, yeah. Because the viewers don't like those people either. Yeah. Yeah. It's so funny. Like, in any n- normal universe where, we, you know, it's it's the right thing to do to snitch on a mobster who just killed somebody. Uh, <laughs> I also think it's important. To, it's a brief thing, but he gets mad at the feds. Yeah. Those lying cocksuckers. Yes. <laughs> so their hypocrisy comes out, too, and working on him. Yeah, right. exactly. It's so good. <laughs> but we're right back into Vic. But first, uh, before they can, Carmela and Vic can have their dream lunch and uh, smash in the powder room, They <laughs> Vic meets up with um, Davy at a bar. Another brutal scene. Tough to watch because it's just a broken man. Uh, and Vic is, this is, you know, a horrible thing to have to tell your brother-in-law that you basically ruined his sister's life and have gambled away everything and his his nephew and Eric's college fund is gone. The business is gone. It's all gone. He tells him, they're animals, Vic. They fucking eat through everything like termites. And Vic is, is rightfully disgusted with this guy. And, uh, you know, this guy, Vic, I, you know, I know he's, uh, he's pursuing a married woman, but I can't hate on this guy. I like that he wants to send Eric to college. You know, he no, seems like he seems like a good man. He's, he's honorable in every scene, really. Um, I don't think he can pay for Georgetown. No, he'll, no way. He'll he'll help, I'm sure, but um, you know, he's a contractor, wallpaper guy. Really, he does and, all right. You know, he's, he'll, he does okay for him. But Georgetown tuition is like for one year is probably half his half his salary. Yeah, it's just it's not it's not. I mean, <laughs> he's being noble. I don't know that he can do that. Yeah. I, I think. This situation is just beyond repair. Davy's taking down all three of them with him. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And the uh, it is striking because I do think he's basically a good dude, but the hypocrisy yeah. touches even him. Mm-hmm. He says in the first scene when he picks his sister up, it doesn't matter who the husband is, I respect the ring. But it, the overwhelming attraction to Carmela means that he doesn't respect the ring, and what he ends up respecting is how dangerous this guy is. Yeah. Yep. 
so he realizes you see the, the you see his whole body language change when he finds out exactly who it is that Davy owes all this money to, and uh, we're not surprised in the next scene. It's it's not quite the next scene, but Carmela's making this lunch and and goes all out, and Vic just no shows her. Stands mm-hmm. her up. Yeah. Nice use of an, an annoying, like, Shania Twain romantic song. Mm-hmm. still the one I want. Yeah, just him not showing up at all. <laughs> yeah. Well, Lily made an interesting point about all that, too, that uh, a lot of the things that Carmela is doing in this episode are are uh, update, updating, modernizing, changing. Memoirs of a Geisha she's reading. That was a huge book when right when this came out. That was like a brand new mm-hmm. thing. Yeah. Uh, the Shania Twain, that was like a big hit song. Um, she's updating and modernizing the house. It's like, you know, she's... And then Tony is... Uh, and all these guys are kind of stuck in this old school thing. So it's, uh, Lily brought that up. I thought that was a pretty astute observation. But it paints a kind of a picture of where Carmela's head's at, where society was at the time. A couple different things there. I liked that. But yeah, getting back to the story, Tony is watching a General Patton documentary when he gets the call from Paulie. Tony loves the History Channel. Not the first time he's he's watching this stuff. Yeah. Something he would normally really dig and he's preoccupied. Yeah, exactly. And uh, gets this news from Paulie that it's all good. It turns out the guy who saw the thing that we know he didn't see didn't see what we know he didn't see. <laughs> and um, Tony hangs up. And I got to give another acting nod in the uh, powder room. <laughs> uh, great acting happens in this powder room. Tony uh, goes in there and uh, he's so relieved he cries. I've been there. It's been I, I've had this exact reaction to certain things when something is weighing on you and suddenly it's gone. Mm-hmm. He played uh, James Gandolfini did such a great job with that moment. It was believable. It was real. And it's it's over little things. Sometimes it's like big things, like a relative who might have been sick but turns out is going to be okay. Or I didn't do a homework assignment and there's a snow day. So it's like, ah, like I've had that relief, that level of, of holy shit, I'm off this. This 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 weight is off of me. So uh, I felt that good acting, a little bit of a mixed emotion around it because he should be in jail. But also like, you know, <laughs> I, I've been there. I get it. Tony. I mean, I totally feel what he's going through. Yeah. He also goes and does this cry in the bathroom where... Victor and Carmelo were making out. Yeah, exactly. He has no idea that he actually dodged two bullets. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> it's, uh, it's very funny. The wheel in the sky, you can't see it all. You can't see the whole arc. Yep. I guess is part of it. Mm. When you're up, other things are down, and you it's all perpetuating itself. Very good. We get the second Tony and Melfi scene. There's a lot to talk about here. Great scene. But I, I do also want to mention, this is yet another scene that ends with an unsatisfying non-conclusion. Yeah. Uh, whereas last time, Carme- uh, uh, Melfi called it. This time, Tony calls it. Says, yeah. you know what? I had enough psychiatry. I dodged a really big bullet. Feeling pretty fucking good about it. I don't need any more psychiatry today. Gets up and leaves. Yeah. Uh, how, so, how's this therapy going? <laughs> well, therapy's not going well, but no. he's happy, and actually, she seems happy for him, actually. Mm. She allows herself to have a little smile about this. Yeah. Um, it was kind of a nice end to the therapy in this episode, but yeah, therapy not effective in this episode. He tells yeah. Melfi about Annalisa. I thought that was interesting. Uh, his scene back in Commendatory, where she tells him he's his own worst enemy. She says, isn't that kind of a cliche? Yeah, she's kind of witchy. It's a more ancient culture over there. Yeah, you know? yeah. They believe in sibyls. <laughs> I thought it was very interesting. I mean, I agree with you guys. That, and I think when she asks him the question, she says the question is, how do you stop? And that's kind of it for him. He's like, all right, I'm feeling good today. I'm out of here. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's also funny to me that even though there is 
a legitimate cloud of suspicion over him in this whole episode and in this scene where Melfi is asking him questions, sort of cross-examining him, it actually is perfectly true to say that I don't know what happened. Because he doesn't know precisely what happened with the witness. Right. He can he can infer. Yeah, But exactly. there's obviously many things he doesn't know. Yeah. And it, and it does bring it all to a head that he's going to continue to misapprehend things as long as he's not emotionally available. As long as she's afraid of him, she's going to be up against a wall. So... It was frustrating to watch. Sure. Also, Annalisa told him, basically, you know, you're, you're your own worst enemy. And he relays that to Melfi, and Melfi says, well, isn't that cliche? Because, obviously, it's, you know, they're probably taught to stay away from cliches as therapists. But uh, it, it's true. Yeah. You know? Uh, I, don't, I don't think Melfi acknowledges it in the way that she probably should. But Annalisa was right. Yeah. It's correct. It's a correct thing to say. It, it is true for Tony. It's certainly. Certainly true for Tony. Then comes the Carmela scene where she's making this lunch. Vic doesn't show up, and we're kind of rapid fire wrapping up these stories now. We're at the end of the episode. The liquidators are coming. I again, great. We talked about we talked earlier about these cuts uh, in the editing room, and John Patterson and David Chase, I'm sure, all had a hand in it. But this cut from the liquidators to Tony's obscene boat. Uh, <laughs> Not an accident. And then, you know, look, the metaphor that happens in this scene where Tony and AJ are having a great time and just barrel and yeah. flip over. Very, the... very blunt instrument yeah, metaphor. It's, it's yeah, not a subtle metaphor at all, but I don't think they have to be subtle. I think it's, <laughs> it makes the point beautifully. Wheel in the sky, and then we're in the credits. And it is kind of funny, uh, dark as the image is. Yeah, it's got the right energy. The, during a couple of these episodes of this season... There's these very bleak themes that come up with music in the background that makes me want to rock. Yeah. Right? Journey, you know. So I had that vibe with the ending. Patterson, I thought, visually did a great job with it. Yeah. Yeah. You can take the boat metaphor probably one step further, and I was thinking about this as I was watching the last scene. He gives him the very basic instructions on how to drive a boat, and I'm like, these are good directions on how you have to navigate, like, mob life, right? Mm. You can't put the brakes on, you know, and you have to plan these turns way ahead of time. Uh, mm. and also look at the unintended consequences. We're going to flip these guys' boats over. Uh, we've acknowledged, you know, that the Sopranos, they're like termites, right? Uh, Tony is the disease, right, in the life of other people around him. Uh, and, yeah, he's he's the big boat that moves through your life and flips you and capsizes you, right? Uh, yeah, it couldn't be, couldn't be more clear, but I, I just, I enjoy that scene. I yes. also enjoy that he gets to spend some time with AJ, but, you know, it, it couldn't be more bittersweet in that moment. Yeah, exactly. It's like one of those classic, and there's many of these on the show as as before this and as it goes. It's like, oh yeah, they're having the time of their life at what cost? Yeah, to everybody else around them. Right. And uh, that's it. That's that's bust out. Hell of an hour. Uh, season two is is going somewhere very good, <laughs> and I mean good dramatically, not good in the larger moral sense. <laughs> right. Uh, I loved it. Bust out. Great hour. Any final thoughts in the episode? I think the I think the show's hitting a stride here. Yeah. Big time. Uh, in terms of the writing and the the and the direction, the overall, I'm just I'm yeah. I mean, it feels like it feels at this point just creatively like they were really firing on all cylinders and they could do no wrong. Uh, <laughs> you know, it's just episode after episode is just nailing it, nailing it, nailing it. Sopranos, look, I know we we rave about it. We're obviously big fans, or we wouldn't be doing this podcast. Sopranos has some weaker spots, but I mean, God, this this is so good. They, they keep doing this. Bust Out's great. It's a bleak, funny hour. It's everything I want out of a Sopranos episode. Great gangster stuff. Great familial stuff. A lot of drama. A lot of hypocrisy. A lot of tension. 
wheel in the sky keeps on turning, and the wheel in the sky, the machine that is the Sopranos writer's room, certainly churning on all cylinders here. Very good. They yeah. capsized my little boat, if you know <laughs> what I mean. Absolutely. Yeah, I was, I was happy to see the Davies Catino plot kind of play on. Yeah, uh, and kind it could have of, very easily just been a one-off. Yeah, and kind of give more depth to the Sopranos' story and, and Tony's own struggles. It's interesting to see when Tony is feeling trapped, how he responds and how he reacts and how it affects the world around him. I think if nothing else, that makes this a really interesting episode. But there's so much to like in this episode. There is so much that's good. Again, I'll say again, it's a very energetic episode. Um, we come in with a lot of energy in each scene, like what's going on? How am I going to react to this? You know, what, what is the action going to be like? And that's going to really contrast our next episode. Amen to that. And with that, this has been Bust Out. I'm Chris D'Amato. I'm Paul Mantini. And I'm Jordan Hugh. We will see you next time. We're going to lock it down, baby. We're in house arrest for our next episode. House arrest. I got myself a girl.